Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. So this week I am doing, I would say, a name that everybody knows of. I certainly knew of her, but I didn't know what she did. But that may have just been me not knowing things. So this week I am going to tell you about Ruth Ellis. have you heard of Ruth Ellis? I have but I think it's like what you just said I'm kind of looking forward to hearing more because it's a name I know but actually if you said to me like explain her criminal history I'd be like uh yeah mm, so no, idea. <laughs> no absolutely um well I'll just begin because like you say the name is very everybody knows it sort of but not knowing what she did. Now, Ruth Ellis, she was born on the 9th of October in 1926. Now, her maiden name was Nielsen, so it was Ruth Nielsen at the time. She was born in the Welsh seaside town of, I want to say Ryle, apologies if I pronounced it wrong. Now, and she was also the third of six children, so she was part of a big family, but again, 1926, probably the average amount of kids that folk would have. There was families of like 14, 15 back then, so... Really, six ain't too bad. Oh, they love to have a big family back then. Yeah. I don't know how they done it with, like, money and stuff. Like, even now, like, one of my best friends, whoo, shout out, is having a baby. And I'm like, how are you going to afford that? What are you going to do with that? Like, you've got to keep that alive. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how, how do you you've do it? You've got to keep that thing alive. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm like, I struggled to keep myself and my two cats alive. <laughs> <laughs> Advice no, needed. Absolutely. Yep. Well, send advice to Caitlin at the crime pod underscore. Um, but no. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. Much Sorry. <laughs> now, during her childhood, her family did move to Basingstoke and her mother was called Elisabetta, also known as Bertha. And she was a Belgian refugee and her father, Arthur Hornby. And he was a cellist from Manchester and he spent much of his time playing on the Atlantic cruise liners. Now, he also ended up changing his surname to Nielsen after the birth of Ruth's eldest sister Muriel because again back then I feel like changing your surname was so much easier to do so there was not probably half the amount as we cover this a lot in cases where it's people that are just like they were called that but they're now called this and it always blows my mind because I'm like why how have you just changed your name yeah, because shout out to my best pal, Katie. She just Ooh. got married and she needs to change her surname. And holy moly, it's so much work oh, and money. Loads of stuff. Yeah, like you need to like even like your banks and stuff, your passport. Yeah. Oh, I feel like it's one of those that's now, like nowadays just easier to play. I'm just going to keep my name. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's like Kaylee, she kept hers on her passport until it runs out. It's like, I ain't going to be paying enough. hundreds of quid for a new passport. Yeah, I grudge getting a passport as it is. Yeah. Like, like I've just renewed my passport as well, so I'm sure it's like 30, I think it's like 31 or something that's run out, so I'm sorry. 
that's when it'll be getting updated yeah 100 percent um but we digress anyway so ruth ellis she attended fairfield's senior girls school in basingstoke and she left when she was just 14 years old and she became a waitress now shortly afterwards in 1941 which was at the height of the blitz remember this is world war ii her whole family moved to london which i'm like why would you move there if it's a blitz? But I guess you know not the best reason. Thing to move to London. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but it was all good. They survived, and you know, to tell the tale. But in 1944, she was now 17 years old. She actually became pregnant by a married Canadian soldier, and he get and no, he never gave birth. Sorry, she gave birth to a son. Now she called him Claire Andre Nielsen but he was also known as Andy. Now, the father did send money for the son for about a year, but then he stopped. And the child actually eventually went to live with Ruth's mother. Now, remember as well, this was a married soldier at the time. So obviously he didn't come and stay with Ruth. There was no, you know, happy families and all that jazz. Now, Ruth no, became... I was going to say, especially back then, like that would have been very frowned. Not that it's not not frowned upon now, but it would have been very much more frowned upon. You couldn't then just be like, right, come move in with me. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like, and I'm gonna guess as well, it probably happened a lot. You know, end of the war, tons of soldiers off to war, tons of soldiers coming to your country, a load of women that don't have men. You know, things happened. We've all seen the movies. But anyway. A lot of women that don't have men. <laughs> well, because they're off at war. Find Samantha in a local war zone. <laughs> no. Anyway, okay. So Ruth became a nightclub hostess through nude modelling work. And it paid really well. So much more than all the various other jobs she had, such as waitressing. She was a factory worker at some times. She had clerical jobs. And she had held all of these jobs since leaving school. So it wasn't like, you know, she left school and did nothing. Now, Morris Connolly, the manager of the court club in Duke Street, where she worked, blackmailed his hostess employees into sleeping with him. Now, early in 1950, Ruth Ellis became pregnant by one of her regular customers, having taken up prostitution for, you know, that extra bit of money. She had this pregnancy terminated in the third month and she did return to work as soon as she could. But I'll also sadly have to ask, um, add that this was illegal. It was illegally terminated, probably in the back alley, because this was not allowed back then. Now, on the 8th of November 1950, she ended up marrying a 41-year-old George Ellis, which is where her surname comes from. And he was a divorced dentist and had two sons. And they just married at the registry office in Tunbridge in Kent. He had been a customer at the court club and he was a violent alcoholic. He was jealous. He was possessive. And to be quite frank, the marriage deteriorated rapidly because he was convinced that she was having an affair. So Ruth left him several times, but she always returned to him. Now, in 1951, while four months pregnant, Ruth had appeared uncredited as a beauty queen in the rank film Lady Godiva Rides Again. So this film, 
it starred a load of famous names from back in the day. Now, there's a few here that I can name. I don't think I've actually heard of any of them. We've got a Dennis Price. I was going to say, that's a big film back in the day. Yeah, it was. And it starred Dennis Price, Dana Winter. And she actually became, Ruth, may I say, became close friends with the production stars, Diana Doors. Now, she subsequently, though, ended up after all of this fame, well not so much fame because she wasn't credited to it but throughout all of this she ended up giving birth to a daughter Georgina. Now George refused to acknowledge paternity because he didn't believe that this was her daughter his daughter because you know this whole time Ruth's going off and doing all this she's cheating on me clearly and they separated shortly afterwards. Now, Ruth and her daughter, they moved in with her parents and she went back to hostessing just to make ends meet. Now, two years later, in 1953, Ruth Ellis became the manager of a nightclub. At this time, she was lavished with expensive gifts by admirers and she had a number of celebrity friends. She met David Blakely three years her junior through a racing driver, Mike Hawthorne. Now, this might that name might mean a lot to some people, but I don't I don't know any of these famous names and I'm really sorry. Now, Blakely was I'm a well very oh, familiar with either, so it's okay. No, it's okay. Just like I think a lot of like there'll be a lot of people that'll listen to this and be like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I am like Yeah, I don't have a clue. Like I'm really sorry. But Blake Blakely, he was a well mannered former public schoolboy, but he was also a hard drinking racer. So that's how they knew through the racing circuit now within weeks he moved into Ruth's flat above the club despite being engaged to another woman called Mary Dawson now Ruth Ellis became pregnant for the fourth time but she did abort the child because she felt that she could not reciprocate the level of commitment shown by Blakely towards her relationship and considering he's also engaged to another woman she then began seeing a Desmond Cousins, born in 1921 in Surrey, and he had been an RAF pilot and he used to fly a Lancaster bomber during the World War II. But he left the RAF in 1946 and he took up accountancy. So completely two completely different jobs. Now, he was appointed a director of the family business, Cousins & Co, and it was a wholesale and retail tobacconist with, with outlets in London and South Wales. When Ruth was sacked as manager of the Carroll Club, she moved in with Cousins at 20 Goodard Court, Devonshire Street, which was north of Oxford Street, and she became his mistress. Now, the relationship with Blakely continued, however, and became increasingly violent and very bitter because Ruth and Blakely continued to see other people. Now Blakely offered to marry Ruth to which she did say yes but she lost another child in January 1955 after a miscarriage induced by a punch to the stomach in an argument with Blakely. So he was a violent man and why she would want to you know continue this and marry him is beyond me but you know when you're in all these situations he's just not a nice yeah, guy yeah you hear about that so often don't you and it's so sad but it's probably one of those that she kind of felt like she didn't have a choice there yeah and we also have to remember as well we're in 1955 ruth is still pretty young like she was born in 1926 
do the math, but I mean, she is still young. <laughs> was it how old is she then, Samantha? <laughs> yeah. Now, on Easter Sunday, which was the 10th of April, 1955, Ruth took a taxi from his uh, cousin's home to a second floor flat at 29 Tanza Road, which was in Hampstead, the home of Anthony and Carol Findlater, and where she suspected that Blakely might be. So as she arrived, Blakely's car actually drove off. So she paid the taxi and walked a quarter of a mile to the Magdala, which was a four-storey public house, which, you know, it was a pub, in South Hill Park in Hampstead, where she found his car parked outside. So at around 9.30pm, David Blakely and his friend Clive Gunnell emerged from the pub. Blakely passed Ruth waiting on the pavement when she stepped out of a doorway that she was hiding in, which was a newsagent just next door to the pub. Now, he ignored her when she did come up to him and said, hello, David. And then she shouted after him, you know his name, David, still ignored him. Now, as Blakely searched for the keys to his car... Ruth Ellis took a 0.38 calibre Smith & Wesson Victory model revolver from her handbag and fired five shots at him. The first shot missed and he started to run. She ran after him round the car where she fired a second shot, which caused him to collapse onto the pavement. She then stood over him and fired three more bullets into him. One bullet was fired less than an inch from his back and which ended up leaving powder burns on his skin. Now, Ruth Ellis was seen to stand mesmerised over the body and witnesses reported hearing several distinct clicks as she tried to fire the revolver's sixth and final shot before finally firing into the ground. Now, this bullet ricocheted actually off the road and it injured a Gladys Kensington Yule, who was 53 years old, in the base of her thumb as she walked into the pub. So imagine walking by and your thumb gets shot by a bullet because it's been ricocheted off the pavement, which is wild. Now, Ruth, she's in a state of shock and she actually turned to um, David's friend, Gunnell, and said, will you call the police, Clive? And she was immediately arrested by an off-duty policeman, Alan Thompson, who took the still gun that was hot and smoking from her. That's how quick he was there. Um, and he put it in his coat pocket and he heard her say, I am guilty. I'm a little confused. So she was taken to Hampstead Police Station, where she appeared to be pretty calm. She wasn't obviously under the influence of drink or drugs. You know, she may have been, but there was no, no signs of this. She made a detailed confession to the police and she was charged with murder. Now, Blakely's body was taken to hospital with multiple bullet wounds to the intestines, liver, lung, aorta and windpipe. So, she's been arrested, she's confessed to it, but no solicitor was present during Ellis's interrogation. I was going to say, I feel like interrogation i feel like she's yes yeah, she's admitted to it but the fact she's saying she's a bit confused and stuff i feel like yes it's back in the kind of olden days but i feel like her mindset needs to really be looked at like is she actually aware of what she's done yeah i couldn't agree more and is this always going to happen at this time you know she's not got a solicitor the police are interrogating her but is, are she getting looked at? Now, she did a, a little later, which I'll get into in two seconds, but the police did take her statement 
And although three police officers were present that night at 11.30pm, not one legal representation had. So Ruth Ellis had no legal representation. So there was all these police around her. She was, you know, confessing to everything that she did, but nothing was there. Now, she was actually still without legal representation when she made her first appearance at the magistrate's court on the 11th of April 1955 when she was held on remand. So again, this whole time, no one's there to help her. Now, like you said, what about her mind? She was actually twice examined by principal medical officer M.R. Henry Williams and he failed to find evidence of a mental illness and she undertook an EEG which I'm not going to pronounce the actual full name because it's an electroencephalography right that examination, which is, you know, you get the pads put on your brain and they, they check all of that. Kind of like an ECG oh, for your wow. heart, but for yeah. your brain. I know what you mean. Yeah. Now, and that was done on the 3rd of May. May, sorry, the 3rd of May. And that failed to find any abnormality. Now, while on remand in Holloway, she was also examined by psychiatrist Dr. Remand. And she was also again examined by psychiatrist Dr. D. Whitaker for the defence and by Dr. A.D.L. on behalf of the Home Office. But neither of these found evidence of insanity. Now, again... Yes, they didn't find any of these things. But still, that does not mean that she was in the right frame of mind. So keep that in mind and we can discuss that in a minute. Now, on the Monday, which was the 20th of June, 1955, Ruth Ellis appeared in the number one court at the Old Bailey in London before Mr Justice Havers. Now, she was dressed in a black suit and white, white silk blouse with freshly bleached and coffered blonde hair. Now, why is this important, Samantha? Well, her lawyers, they actually ended up representing her in the end, so she did finally have legal representation. They wanted her to play down her appearance, but she was determined to have her moment. To many in the courthouse, her fixation with being the brassy blonde was at least partially responsible for the poor impression she made when giving evidence, because when she was in court, in the witness box, she said, it's obvious when I shot him, I intended to kill him. That's all she said at the court. But she wanted to still show that, look, I look like this. I'm great. This is who I am. I'm not going to play it down for you, if that makes sense. Also in the papers and all that, you know, movie stars, etc. Now, this was her answer. And that was to the There's only Sorry, person... sorry. I'm going... Sorry, can I say something, please? Of course. Um, you hear that a lot, though, where there is kind of people like that that still want to be seen and want to, like, look at Tracy Andrews, for example. Like, she's still wanted to look really good and all this stuff which makes total sense so again if she's thinking like she's feeling like flashy etc she is absolutely gonna show that off do you know what I mean yeah no definitely and you know quite rightly so I guess I know she's just murdered someone I don't mean like you can do what you want when you've murdered someone but I mean show off is probably your last time you're gonna get to so just do it now her, that was the question, you know, it's obvious when I shot him, I intended to kill him. That was her only answer to the only question put to her by um, Christmas Humphreys, which was the counsel for the prosecution, who asked, when you fired the revolver at close range into the body of David Blakely, what did you intend to do? Now, the defending counsel did support um, Ruth Ellis and 
they said that before the trial began, this is the only question that they're going to probably ask you. So be aware, you know, something's going to happen. Just answer it. Now, the jury, because of this, took only 14 minutes to convict her. Now, she received the sentence and she was taken to the condemned cell at Holloway. Now, she was um, sentenced to death because of what she did. We're in 1955. She was found guilty. This is the death penalty. It still exists in Britain in these times. I forget about the death penalty sometimes, especially in Britain. Yes, which is wild because, like you said, I, I always forget it's a thing. All I think of was, oh, probably Florida or something. You know what I mean? Now, yeah, so, yeah. Like when you look at cases like Bundy and stuff, you're like, of course there was a death penalty. But in the UK, I'm like, oh, over here. I like, yeah. totally forget we ever had it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Now, jumping, I am jumping way forward just for two seconds. But in 2010, there was a television interview with Mr. Justice Havers, the grandson. Um, actor Nigel Havers he was in Coronation Street I'm sure because he his grandfather was obviously was the justice yeah I'm sure he was you'll see if I'll send you a photo of him he was definitely in Coronation Street now his grandfather had actually written to the Home Secretary at the time rec- recommending a reprieve as he regarded it as a crime of passion but received an absolute refusal which was still held by the family so it'd been suggested that the final nail in her coffin was that an innocent passerby had been injured. You know, the lady with the thumb. So yes, this was a crime of passion. Didn't oh really... yeah, I forget about the lady with the thumb. Yeah, but because she was injured, people were like, nope, she's she's a murderer. She's done this. <laughs> it's crime. Uh, there's no way to get through this. Now, back to 1955. So at midday on the 12th of July, 1955, the day before her execution, Ruth Ellis, having dismissed um, Bickford, which was the solicitor chosen for her by her friend Desmond Cousins, made a statement to the solicitor um, saying that who's actually this solicitor represented her in her divorce proceedings, but not the murder trial and his clerk. And she revealed more evidence about the shooting and said that the gun had actually been provided by cousins and that he had driven driven her to the murder scene now following their 90 minute interview in the in the cell the solicitors went to the home office where they spoke to a senior civil servant about her you know everything that she's just said but the authorities made no effort to follow this up and again there was no reprieve now in a final letter to david blakely's parents from her prison cell Ruth Ellis did write, I have always loved your son and I shall die still loving him. Now, the 30 seconds before 9am on Wednesday the 13th of July, the official hangman, Albert Pierre Point, and his assistant entered the condemned cell and they escorted Ruth to the 15 feet to the execution room, which was just next door. Now, she weighed in at 103 pounds the previous day. So, um, because, you know, apparently all of this does matter when you're the hangman, they put a drop of eight foot and four inches. Now, he put the um, pier point, sorry, affected the execution in just 12 seconds. But Ruth Ellis's body was left hanging there for an hour. Now, her autopsy report by the pathologist was made public. But again, I don't know why you've, you've got a whole pathologist report. You've, you've hung someone 
to death. That that's how they've died. You know what I mean? Now, yeah, I feel like that's very much cause of death. But I don't know if it's maybe has to be done so to prove that she was executed like correctly. Like if they then found out cause of death was like beating or something, they could then be like, oh shit, actually that's not what was meant to happen. Yeah, I never even thought of that. That's a really good point. I like that. Now, the Bishop of Stepney, which was just a blank, visited Ruth Ellis just before her death because, and she told him, it is quite clear to me that I was not the person who shot him. When I saw myself with a revolver, I knew I was another person. Now, these comments were also made public in a London evening paper at the time, which was called The Star. Now, there was public reaction to all of this case. Now, it it caused a widespread controversy at the time and the press and the public were so interested and they actually were so, it was so public in knowledge that people were, you know, going against it or were for it that even the cabinet um, at the parliament had to discuss what had happened. Now, on the day of her execution, the Daily Mirror columnist, col- col- sorry, the columnist, Cassandra wrote a column attacking the sentence, writing that the one thing that brings stature and dignity to mankind and raises us above the beasts will have been denied her. Pity and the hope of ultimate redemption. Now, a petition to the Home Office asking for clemency, which is really just, you know, um, what does that mean again? <laughs> Sorry, it means like mercy. It just, you know, asking oh, for like mercy. Oh, Yes. Um, that was uh, signed by 50,000 people, but the Conservative Home Secretary rejected it. Now, there was many books, there was many TV shows, there was many everything put forward and created for this Ruth Ellis. Because it turns out Ruth Ellis was the last woman in the UK to be killed by the death penalty. So she was hung. Now... The death penalty, I don't believe, was actually removed until about 10 years later. Now, there was, according to one statistical account, it was between 1926 and 1954 that 677 men and 60 women had been sentenced to death just in England and Wales. That's crazy, though, that, like, it was another 10 years and there was no other woman. No, no other woman. committed anything that was worth the death penalty. Do you know, that's... That's a long time. I was expecting you to say, like, she just missed it or something. I was like, oh, that's going to be so sad if it was, like, under review or something. And she just missed it and ended up getting hung or whatever. But, like, that's mad to think, actually, it's 10 years. 10 years later. The last execution in the UK actually occurred in 1964. So, sorry, it was, say, nine years. Um, which is still a long time. Like you say, it is crazy. And with those statistics of the 677 men and the 60 women that had been sentenced to death, only, I say only with, you know, like, oh, still a lot of people, 375 men and seven women had actually been executed. So it's like what you hear, you know, in all these American ones, is that people are sitting on death row for so, so long. So that's kind of what happened here. Um, not with Ruth Ellis, though, obviously. It only took her three weeks yeah. and they hung her. Now, Which is crazy, eh? But, like, it's a really, sorry, and a really interesting programme to watch is the one on Netflix, which is, like, Life and Death Row. And, like, I totally understand it. Like, if you have committed a serious murder and you've been sentenced to death row, like, that, that's fine. Like, you've been sentenced to death, that's fine. 
like it's not fine like the death penalty I, I really hum and haw with it because there's some cases that I'm like absolutely the death penalty but then I'm like the amount of miscarriages of justice we like even do on the crime pod alone I'm like holy shit like how could you be 100% sure that that is your person but yeah I think if you're then sentenced to like death for example and it happened you know what's happening like in a week's time or whatnot like yeah that's gonna be a horrific week but it's a week whereas you watch this show and there's people that are like I've been on death row for 20 years and I'm like what the fuck like so anytime in those 20 years they could then just be oh it's next week by the way or it's tomorrow and I'm like that is a type of torture I feel to just have somebody sitting being like yeah and, and I guess it, a lot of people that are for the death penalty are like yeah but they've killed somebody and I'm like yeah I hear I hear what you're saying that is not okay but actually like it, is it worth keeping somebody for that long like if we're going to kill them just kill them yeah I think if we're going to use the death penalty like okay if you can definitely confirm someone's done it and they need to be sentenced to death or whatever but having somebody wait for 20 years I do think is unreasonable I think that's ridiculous um and especially when it's not like without being really graphic it's not like there's a waiting list it's not like oh actually sorry were fully booked up with executions for 20 years like why why are they just sitting are you waiting for them to be proven innocent like especially there's some on that program on Netflix life on death row that are like no I, I I did do it like I'm literally guilty and I'm like right okay so if they've been sentenced to death and they are saying yeah I did it why is it not happening then so I feel like the fact that it's still that doubt and they're still the waiting it's like that's just silly just abolish the death penalty it's just you can't fully justify it yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I don't agree with the death penalty. I know that obviously some people do, but um, yeah. I think no. it's just such a tricky one. Like, it's very easy to say, like, yeah, like, I agree. Like, I'm for the death penalty because, like, you know, if someone's to kill my family, I'd want them to be killed, which I totally hear that. I totally, totally hear that. But can you be 100% sure? Because let's flip it. And if a member of your family was found guilty of something they didn't do, how would then you then they got, feel? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very easy, like, I would love to say if someone killed you, Sam, or whatever, I'd love them to see the death penalty, and I'd love to make sure justice was fully served and all that, and I would love to say I could do that, but then imagine, like, if you were then arrested for murder, and I was like, well, she didn't ask my help, so she obviously didn't do it, Um, but, like, if you were arrested (laughs) for murder and actually found guilty, and then they sentenced you to the death penalty, and you were like, I literally didn't do it, how do you then deal with that? Yeah. No, I agree with you. And then I guess, bef- like, we won't get fully into it, but then you've got the whole, the people that are killing the people who have been put on death row, well, then they're murderers too, so why aren't you killing them? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah it's your it's job to murder one, someone, it? but it's like, it shouldn't be your job. Nobody should have the job of murder. Um, who, like, do you also, where do you get those jobs? Like, generally, how do they, like, hire? Mm-hmm. Do they pay well? Indeed? Because if, if they pay well, then... <laughs> like, no, I'm kidding. You know, it's like, but it's like a really funny thing. Like, And what kind of person do you have to be to want to do that job? Yeah, probably dead inside. Mm. I find the whole death row conversation really interesting because I feel like everyone's always got a different version of their thoughts. Even if they're for it or against it, a lot of people have different reasons as to why. So, <laughs> again, if you follow us on Instagram, underscore the crime pod, or is it the crime pod underscore? No, the crime pod underscore. Lol! Uh, <laughs> please let us know. Yeah, send us a on, message. Yeah, if you've got a reason for or against it, like, we're not going to judge you, but actually, like, what is your views on the death penalty? I find it such an interesting topic. Yeah, no, it, absolutely, that'd be quite good. Um, I'll just quickly finish this off 
sorry, I know we digressed, and but that was a good discussion. But it's just to say there was quite actually a big aftermath of her family um, after her uh, obviously hanging. Now we jump to 1969. Ellis, um, Ruth Ellis's mother, Berta, she was actually found unconscious in a gas-filled room in her flat in Hemel Hampstead. Now she never fully recovered and she didn't speak coherently ever again, but she did survive. Now her husband, George Ellis, he descended into alcoholism, even more so than already was, and he actually hanged himself in 1958. Now her son Andy, who was 10 at the time of his mother's hanging, he suffered irreparable psychological damage and committed suicide in a bed set in 1982. Now, the trial judge, Sir Cecil Havers, had sent money every year for Andy's upkeep and Christmas Humphreys, the prosecution counsel at her trial, paid for his funeral. Now, Ellis's daughter, Georgina, who was three when her mother was executed, she was adopted when her father hanged himself three years later and she died of cancer aged 50. So a complete domino effect and also the fact that these legal rep, like, people you know um, the judge and the council paid for her son's upkeep clearly they must think hmm should this have really happened now like they say they didn't actually have a choice back in back in the day in 1955 when someone was sentenced to life for murder it was the death penalty they could not say back then actually okay you've got life imprisonment with 15 years minimum that was not a choice they did not have the choice to do that and that is why she was hung now there was loads of things happening after then even so much so that um in i think was it 2007 a petition was actually published um to 10 downing street on their website asking the prime minister gordon brown at the time to reconsider the ruth ellis case and grant her a pardon in the light of new evidence that the old bailey jury in 1955 was not asked to consider now that all expired in july 2008 and there was a lot of upheaval from everyone that had to look into it because they're saying you know this is what happened in 1955 we cannot look at it now with the law of today and if we're spending so much time on this we could be solving other things that are happening so there's a lot of to and throw on this case there's also i actually another... do get that to be fair like without being all like yeah leave it blah blah, blah. but like you could then reopen every death penalty case that we ever had and you yes. could then look at actually, because a lot of them shouldn't have been death penalty cases. So I just feel like you're then opening yourself up for a big job. No, absolutely. And I, I do agree on that one. You know, we've got to spend our time and resources for what's actually going on now. Now, also, there was things that's happened 10 days before Ruth committed these crimes. She had just suffered a miscarriage because the person that she killed punched her in the stomach was she i know she had all these scans and things but was she in the right frame of mind probably not did she know what she was doing at the time probably not there's also one other thing as well i'd like to just quickly say is sorry that, just to jump yeah just to jump in before yeah. you say though was she in the right state of mind that's not going to show up though that's not going to show up as a mental illness do you know what I mean? It's not going to be like that could be that she was actually due to what was going on with her just there. It could be why she was acting like that. So, yeah, you're right. That might not show up as a mental illness, but it doesn't mean that she was in the right state of mind. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And 
to be honest, I don't think she would have been in the right state of mind. Now, the last thing as well. Yes, she's prolific. Everybody knows the name Ruth Ellis. She was the last woman hung and executed in the United Kingdom. But this was, let's just say, it was a crime of passion. If there was no death penalty, yes, it would have got all of this public um, back in the day in 1955. Everybody would have been talking about it. But I don't think if she had just got, you know, life imprisonment or, you know, X amount of years, it would have just been one of those other names and murders that just would have been added to the many lists of everything that we all forget about because something else comes, comes, you know, comes along that's like crazy. Yes, it's bad, but if she hadn't been hung and if there was no death penalty, yep. I don't think we would have we would have even known about her. No, generally, it's just a name that you wouldn't then remember without being really brutal. Like, it's a very kind of standard crime. Um, the one that I'm working on for our Halloween episode, ooh, is another ooh. one that I'm going to kind of, I think it was because of its time and because of the nature of it, where it's actually, it's made up to be something bigger than it is, if that makes sense. And I think that mm-hmm. is exactly one of those. If she hadn't been hung, there's no way we would still be talking about her if she was just found guilty and went to jail got out and carried on with her life there's no way we'd be having this conversation now 